0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Patrick Kurz. Professor Kurz is Professor of International um, History at the University of Florence. He has previously taught at Yale and has been a fellow of both Harvard University and St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Today we are discussing his newest book, The New Atlantic Order, The Transformation of International Politics, 1860-1933, to 1933, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Professor.
1: Yes, thank you so much, and thank you for having me on the New Books Network. I'm pleased to be here.
0: Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
1: Well, um There's more than one thesis, but one of the main ones is that um, we have to to, uh, understand in a new way uh, both the origins of the First World War and especially um, the transformation of the global order that um, ensued in the aftermath of this great war, and uh, I'm trying to show that Uh, The the real first attempt to build a modern world order, namely uh, that undertaken at the Paris Peace Conference, um, was at the core really um, a bid to build a new Atlantic order undertaken between European and American uh, protagonists, which then had massive global implications. And um, to add to that, um, I'm trying to show in this book that in order to understand what was possible and conceivable after the First World War in terms of building uh, a new security architecture, a new architecture of norms in the world, Um, we have to understand uh, um, a much bigger background. Um, And I'm trying to illuminate what I call the long 20th century, the long 20th century in which the modern international system um, really uh, came into being and in my interpretation this long 20th century started in the middle of the chronological 19th century in the 1860s and it only has come to an end roughly in our days yeah? so uh, so this
0: is uh, what the book is trying to, uh, to show so you don't adhere to the concept of the long 19th century
1: um, I think this is a very um, interesting and uh, illuminating concept, and I'm engaging with it. But I'm I'm asking in this book, yeah. So what is it uh, we have to try to understand if we want to see what kind of transformation yeah took us from the world of the mid 19th century, in which at that point you had still um a very kind of variegated world yeah with a, a vienna system in, uh, prevailing in europe um and very separate sort of spheres of order in the western hemisphere in uh, in east asia and so on and so uh, if we try to understand so what changed the entire world from then onwards yeah i think we have to go beyond uh, the long 19th century ideas which always end around 1920, and rather take into view this sort of um, century that commenced with this globalizing imperialist competition yeah, that caused so much disarray um, and violence in the end, and the great wars in my interpretation of the 20th century. But then also um, the attempts that were made by policymakers, activists, many others, to reconceptualize what it would take, what kind of international order would have to be built to regain something like global peace and global order under the new circumstances. And for this, we need to have a wider focus, which I call the focus of the the long 20th century.
0: Would it be true to say that the late Paul Schroeder was a major influence on how you envisage, envisage international politics in the 19th and early 20th century?
1: Um, yes, absolutely. I um, Paul has been a long-term sort of mentor and friend um, uh, ever since I wrote my my first book, The Unfinished Peace, after World War I. And the starting point in this book is uh, has a lot to do with his idea of what happened in the long 19th century. You might know in his very important work on uh, the transformation of European politics, he, um, I think, makes a very uh, uh, superb case for understanding the transformation that occurred after the the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars and the the both European and global significance of the Vienna system. Now, my book, in a way, takes uh, this as the starting point and asks why did the Vienna order of the 19th century collapse? Why was it no longer possible to maintain something like an international concert under the pressures of um, state development and imperialist competition from the mid-19th century onwards? So, uh, this is is the the, the kind of calamity. These are the, the, the conflicts that in the end, in my interpretation, led to eventual learning processes and attempts to recreate something like a a modern Atlantic concert um, in the the 20th century.
0: Why did the Vienna settlement of 1814-1815 collapse in the mid to late 19th century?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think um I think one has to look at this both from an inner European and a global perspective. In the inner European perspective um one could certainly argue that uh, the the Vienna concert um maintained a kind of equilibrium that was hard to reconcile with the ever more forward moving forces of the age, liberal nation building forces um and um, at the same time, um, it, it it could only last as long as those who were maintaining the system were interested in um, in developing it further. And when especially British policymakers uh, were ever more interested in expanding their imperial global system, the British Empire, and were investing ever less in what was happening in in continental Europe. Um, this this concert corroded evermore, then of course we have the Crimean War, which really made it implode. Um, but I also think, um, as I tried to show in the first part of my new book, um, that you have um, the rise of a new kind of set of priorities and understandings of international politics, what I would subsume under the, the heading Realpolitik yeah, in the era of Napoleon III and Bismarck on the one hand. And you have these immensely dynamic forces of modern state building in the Industrial Revolution, demographic changes, and others, which really alter the altered the entire landscape of international politics. You know, for especially from the 1860s onwards, with the unification of Germany, Italy, the reunification of the United States after the Civil War, and and so you have a constellation in which there is ever more competition and struggle, and ever less coordinated, concerted conflict management. Um, And I think this is something that then finally uh, led to a corrosion of the original Vienna concert instead of its globalization. And so you have eventually, by 1914, these very kind of antagonistic um, alliance and alignment systems that faced each other. Uh, when uh, uh, the, the crisis of 1914
0: ensued. So it would be true to say that, unlike some other scholars, you believe that the period of uh, so-called high imperialism was uh, one of increasing instability as per international politics.
1: Uh, of increasing instability, yeah. So increasing, yes, conflict, and um, there were there were many instances. This has been shown by many scholars of managing crises, yeah, of 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 at least preventing an all-out war. But there was structurally ever less being done to address the underlying uh, competition, yeah, and to and to envisage a kind of international politics that would really um, sort of uh, led to a more equitable, but also more more a sustainable international order. And um, this is, of course, a time, and this is another theme of the book in which yeah you have um, certain German, Russian, French policies. Um, you have Japan coming in as a new kind of member of the highest tier of this uh, club of imperialist powers. But you also have a United States that is still yeah, not taking any major international responsibilities, but very much partaking in the um, informal um, and partly formal imperialist race, um, especially, of course, uh, on the so-called Pacific frontier and in China. So I, uh, I'm i trying to show how yeah, you had certain counter forces, international lawyers, uh, the socialist international, others who were, Warning that, yeah, that that the kind of mobilization, the kind of competitiveness, the kind of world power uh, pursuit uh, was carrying immense uh, uh, sort of seeds of danger of, of potential war, but in the at the core of international politics you had other kinds of. Yeah, um, uh, premises that that still prevailed, and that in my view led to a, a, a situation when, you know, 1914, after the the first escalation of the July crisis, you have um, the British uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, Sir Edward Grey, calling for a you know, the European Concert to step forward to solve this crisis. He still could utter the words, but the Concert no longer existed. And instead, we have the escalation towards war, which then yeah, changed everything in the in the First World War.
0: Would it be correct to say that you are not entirely comfortable uh, with adhering to the concept of primat de in politik in your treatment?
1: Um, yeah, it's true. I'm trying <clears throat> in my uh, in in the introduction. I'm trying to lay out a new kind of. Um, Methodological and also theoretical uh, sort of approach to international modern international politics, and I I find it much more convincing to speak of interdependencies and interrelations between domestic politics, international politics, and ever more in at this time of of world history, transnational politics. Yeah, that is, you have very dynamic inner state developments. You have those that reach across imperial and national boundaries and still have an impact on different domestic scenarios. And you have um, certain ideas at the level of international diplomacy. And all of these spheres are ever more interconnected. Yeah. So it's, it's no longer possible, if it ever was, to make international politics in the manner of the Congress of Vienna when you had certain actors being more, not entirely, but more aloof from domestic necessities. Um, My book also tries to show that in this very tumultuous period, we have an overall trend of democratization, of more sort of participation of societies of different actors, also in international politics, which made eventual diplomatic agreements or peace negotiations far more complex than they had been before. Yeah? Because all of these main actors, if we eventually come to the yeah, the, the Paris Peace Conference in, in particular, they no, not only had to sort of find ways yeah, to, uh, to reconcile their divergent interests and outlooks, they also had to find kind of agreements that they could legitimize uh, domestically because they were more or less democratically elected leaders. Um, and this is a this is an, a, a structural change uh, in international politics that goes far beyond the primacy of of inan or domestic politics uh, in my interpretation.
0: Why do you posit that imperial rule of the pre Great War period was quote unsustainable in key respects unquote? Mm-hmm.
1: In particular, because I think that it um, it had created a kind of dynamism a situation where Um, a particular set of states were using their relative and temporary superiority in terms of resources, power projection and political influence um, to to try to navigate and manage their differences and to um, allow uh, um, a kind of expansion at the expense of whoever was not part of this prime club, and this became, I mentioned it already, I think, especially, of course, blatantly obvious in the so-called scramble for Africa, but you you could also see it in the in the changes in in East Asia where. As I mentioned, only Japan, after the so-called Meiji Restoration, which was more a revolution, was defensively trying to modernize, not to suffer the fate, as they saw it, of uh, the Chinese Empire, which by the the late uh, chronological 19th century, in my view, the the a formative period of the long twentieth century was a subservient uh, a state a, um, a highly uh, corrupted and at the mercy not just of european uh, uh, sort of spheres of influence and and uh, um, um, imperial ventures but also of course american uh, capitalist and uh, and political influence and when there was an attempt to found you know, with Sun Yat-sen and others, a first Chinese uh, republic to try to um, make China into a sovereign state, um, the the kind of interests and the kind of um, ideas that still were pre- prevalent at that time made that impossible. So it created a situation in which, in large parts of the world, um, I think there were yeah there were uh, a, a kind of hierarchies. That uh, that were not sustainable for long. Yeah? At the same time, of course, this this pursuit, this this, this competitiveness on the world stage, set the, the mental stage for this yeah, mobilization also of military um, and and political and and social means that uh, without which you would never have had this very inflammatory situation in 1914. So here too, I think the idea that one could have Sort of, yeah, just kept out of all all-out war became ever and ever thinner proposition. Yeah, and this also made uh, this whole way of 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 doing international politics, in my view, unsustainable, um, which was then so shockingly shown in 1914.
0: Why do you state that the United States was quote not yet a world power in the decades before 1914 unquote?
1: Uh huh. Yeah. In in short, I'm, as I'm trying to show, um, modes of conduct and certain traditions, the Monroe Doctrine or, of, um, of of the self-understanding of U.S. elites, um, basically had led to a situation where the United States, after the Civil War, had become a very important industrial, economic, eventually also financial power but in terms of international politics it was still a very um, a power that was uh, picking and choosing it was trying to have its uh, imperialist cake and eat it without taking any uh, responsibility in the international arena it was neither part of any um, alliances or security uh, uh, arrangements it it basically was an aloof uh, power and there was an, an ensuing debate within the United States. We can think of figures like Theodore Roosevelt and others um, who were trying to take the United States more into the, the direction of a leading power um, on on a par with the British Empire. That was supposed to, yeah, you know, maybe at some point, as he as he saw it, had um, uh, a kind of league of of policing powers in the world but um, there was no um, consensus or even a, a large uh, debate in the United States about what it would really take to take responsibility uh, in international affairs and uh, the only sphere in which um, the United States was was a leading power was that of international law and arbitration yeah so for example in the in the making of the Hague conventions before 1914 Um, But this, again, uh, had not translated into the idea that it should take political responsibility beyond uh, the Western Hemisphere. And of course, in the Western Hemisphere itself, it was acting as a self-appointed imperial hegemon Um, and losing um, a lot of um, uh, legitimacy in the process. And with all the interventions, especially in, in Central America at this at this period, so. Um, by the time the the First World War escalated, it was, as I tried to show, very ill prepared for for taking on a major role on the world stage as the new president, Woodrow Wilson, uh, commanded uh, or was trying to suggest. Um, And so um, it is no coincidence that at first um, he tried to uh, sort of stick to this position that the United States should be a neutral power and stay out of uh, this major conflict which eventually he could no longer do
0: would it be true to say that you agree with sir christopher clark's revisionist view of the outbreak of the great war
1: <clears throat> not entirely um, as i try to show in my first part i think the um, the idea that one has to take a very broad view and has to look at the uh, the multiplicity of actors the complexity of the situation and the um, sort of yeah the um, the complexity also of decision making processes um, i think this is a very valid point on the other hand um, i do think that um the uh, often used sort of metaphor of sleepwalking of the sleepwalkers is in part um misleading because um i i find it it it, it does apply to the uh, to the fact that most of the actors who went into this war could not really imagine could not conceive of what kind of war this would be yeah and how destructive and how how extremely costly it would be be and how almost unwinnable, yeah, on any on, on, on major terms. But there is another aspect to this. Um, I, I do think that uh, if you look at the, yeah, the, the, the the German military and political leadership or the, or the French or the Russian or the, the British even, you see that they all were very, very much sort of calculating, trying to position themselves and making plans eventually no longer to prevent. Yeah, an escalation of the war, but to be in the position to win it. Yeah, and this is something that is much more important uh, to understand if we want to uh, to see why um, it wasn't possible to de-escalate um, in the in the decisive weeks in the summer of 1914. Yeah, and this is uh, and this has has less to do with sleepwalking than with uh, making. Uh, uh calculations um based on on wrong, on on wrong headed assumptions yeah so i i don't uh i don't agree there um finally um one i think has to uh to uh, to see that this is it's it's such a politicized uh, um yeah dispute but um whereas all of these powers bear part of the responsibility for creating the situation. Yeah, It is especially uh, true that the kind of lack of clear leadership structures in the Wilhelminian Empire and their uh, sort of uh, military leadership's idea that at some point they had to take the initiative for uh, what they thought of as a kind of preventive war particularly um, narrowed the choices yeah, for, uh, between war and avoiding war, and so they, they bore a particular responsibility for this outbreak. But I would agree with Chris uh, Clark and so far as um, it would be very misleading uh, to sort of continue this blame game uh, debate endlessly and to uh, exonerate uh, the other actors yeah, in the July crisis by pointing towards the German
0: Empire. Why do you say that the Great War caused, quote, tectonic changes in the international order, unquote? Yeah, one can
1: one can see this, I think, on on, on several levels. Um, the most sort of tectonic, really kind of ch- structurally changing change that I can see, uh, that I think this war caused, is that it, um, it really um, made collapse, the former kind of basic hierarchy, um, which was still uh, of world order or disorder, which was still a very um, uh, Euro-centered kind of world order in which not just the British Empire but also the other European uh, imperial powers had an inordinate amount of of influence and power and um, on the way in which world politics was pursued. This uh, um, collapsed when not just the so-called Eastern Empires, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian and the German Empire collapsed as a consequence of the war, but the entire kind of international system that had existed before 1914 really was corroded. Secondly, we have uh, this this immense global, um, I think, impact of this war, um, um, in in that it um, gave um, a first opportunity and um, a first incentive for all those that had not been equal members of the old order, namely those who had lived under different forms, not just of colonial rule, but also imperial um, uh, subjugation um formal or informal to try to to change yeah the the basic uh, to turn the table of of world politics and to take um a stand in trying to uh, create a new kind of world order that was supposed to be uh, truly global and uh, far more egalitarian Finally, uh, these actors and others, like those in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, who, in like Poles or Czechs and Slovaks and many others, were trying now and successfully trying to carve out states of their own out of the the wreckage of the uh, the former exactly. empires. All of those could now point to the advent of you know, two major forces that also had already been present but rather peripheral before 1914 on the one hand uh the um yeah the, the socialist bolshevik left alternative uh, saying that this war should just be the beginning of a, a much more uh, sort of radical um revolutionizing change in the international order, the, the building of a new order of Soviet republics on the Marxist-Leninist model, and on the other hand, you know, the, 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 the fact that the the, United, the the American power that I just described as having still been aloof and rather staying out of you know, world politics in, in central aspects was now under the leadership of Woodrow Wilson, but also um, under the influence of many other american uh, sort of uh, political and intellectual figures um stepping forward and uh, and and suggesting that quite contrary to what lenin and what others were saying this should be the time to build a more american style yeah new world order Based on self-government, as Wilson would have it, um, on certain ideas of um, lawfulness in international relations, and that was now uh, trying to 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 uh, suggest that this kind of new world order could be built um, around what Wilson borrowing from British liberals called a League of Nations. Yeah, so the overall power structure, um and the um the sort of the question of who were the protagonists who really could um were in a position to to point to the the kind of future of world order? all of this had changed so tectonically, yeah uh, dramatically because of the first world war.
0: What do you make of Woodrow Wilson as a statesman? Would not American policy during this period have been for lack of better expression, more rational. If either Roosevelt or Taft had been in the White House when the Great War broke out, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it's an interesting question. I um, I hope uh, my book contains uh, a very uh, comprehensive and and it's probably a, it's a critical but I hope balanced uh, appraisal of Woodrow Wilson. Um, I think. A particular sort of, I think one, one thing one has to say um, at the beginning is that, um, so Wilson, uh, my book is also a book about learning processes, not just linear learning processes of yeah, sort of finding ways of doing, of of finding a better way, a better practice, a better solution to problems, but, but the very effect that these immense challenges of the the First World War and all the ramifications uh, and repercussions it brought uh, posed to uh, political actors. And Woodrow Wilson, uh, in my uh, interpretation, is a particular example of of a politician who had come uh, uh, to be president on a, a largely uh, domestic reform agenda, the new freedom agenda. Huh? So, an idea of yeah, building, uh, reforming a progressive uh, state in the United States and who then found himself in a in an environment where he had to, uh, without major experience, without having thought a lot about international affairs other than in very... Um, yeah kind of uh, unoriginal terms for example as a liberal proponent of uh, the um, the takeover of the Philippines and sort of liberal imperialism before 1914 he all of a sudden had to um yeah kind of uh, uh, find a way or he and he wanted to find this way to 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 become the head of a global transformation uh, movement and and i think that um his his inexperience and his his um uh, often very blatant inability really to um to look realistically at the challenges ahead made him Quite um, vulnerable to um, what I would call ideological hyperbole. Yeah? So he he was drawing concepts and ideas mainly from the realm of U.S. domestic politics and tried to internationalize them. And in the process, for example, in suggesting uh, that uh, one it was possible and uh, feasible yeah, to um, to uh, to build a new order of self-governed. Um, states uh, that would replace uh, the old order of empire and at the same time to suggest that one could replace all the old kind of, in his view, European style power politics with a new kind of international politics um, of collective security uh, based on the League of Nations. Um, Of course, created, I think, expectations and created... Sort of, um, yeah, d- uh, or heightened demands for change that he himself was not in a position to deliver. And I think one of the most Interesting uh, questions here, and this is uh, a, a central theme of the the fourth part of the book, the, which deals with a new a reappraisal of the Paris Peace Conference. Is how far Wilson and his advisers really had to learn that they could not simply you know, decree the new the terms of this new world order; that they were not in a position of power or did not have the kind of prestige or the you know, the kind of bargaining uh, power to um, basically determine uh, what would happen in post-World War One, Europe, uh, East Asia and so on. Rather, they had to learn how to negotiate, how to pursue very complex negotiations, especially with the most powerful counterparts that they would encounter, the British government, the French government, the Japanese delegation and others. And in this uh, respect, I would this is speculative one could imagine that um if you had had someone like theodore roosevelt he would have for example tried in his own way to build far more of a a common kind of uh, um front and a sort of uh with uh, for example the the british uh, government or would have been let's say more more forthright in pursuing uh, certain priorities um, but my, uh, my my underlying point in this book is that any American leader at this time yeah, faced an immense uh, double challenge, namely to learn on the one-on-one level, to negotiate, yeah, to interact and engage with the rest of the world in finding new terms of world order, and on the other hand, to persuade, convince American public opinion, but also Congress and the different power structures within Congress, of course, especially uh, the um, oppositional Republicans, that his kind of future idea of an internationally committed United States as the stalwart sort of hegemon of the new League of Nations would actually be both in America's interest, but also what yeah uh, the american the what what wilson called true americanism called for at that time in fact this was very contested and as we know um wilson was particularly inept at um building uh, political sort of bridges between the different factions in congress and eventually um failed in his attempt to try to you know, sort of pressure congress into um accepting the Treaty of Versailles and his uh, vision of the League of Nations with major, major consequences. If Taft or Roosevelt had fared better at that stage, um, I'm not so much into uh, sort of uh,
0: a speculative, speculative history. What do you mean, or perhaps you could elaborate a bit when you state that uh, the Great War lasted too short a time period to allow for a greater learning processes by the statesman at the helm of politics at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, here,
1: uh, the, so the one of the underlying, as I mentioned, underlying themes of this book is to try to understand what we really mean if we say that we we can speak of more fundamental learning processes. And in my interpretation, um, the uh, the catastrophe of the of the first world war yeah so in many ways didn't just shake up empires and sort of structures of um, territorial uh, possession or any of that it also shook to the core you know, the very assumptions the underlying ideas of international politics such as they had been practiced uh, up to 1914 so this yeah this idea that you that you if, if you wanted to be a world power you had to do you had to engage in this game of high imperialism and you had to mobilize your populations and you had to um in the end be uh, prepared to win in a major uh, international war yeah if if that became necessary so um as as i'm trying to show um many of the actors who would come to the fore to the helm of of their respective uh, states, uh, nations, or movements during the First World War, um, they were in part trying to take to draw lessons from yeah, the catastrophe of the July Crisis and this ever yeah, sort of more uh, sort of escalating uh, industrial mass slaughter war that ensued afterwards. But they were still, on the other hand, very much in thrall of the the kinds of assumptions or ideas of hierarchy, of what international security was based on, uh, that had prevailed before the war. Yeah? They had been socialized. Most of them had been socialized in this era of high imperialism. And um, in uh, Wilson's case, to, to start there, um, I think one can show, uh, as I try to show quite clearly, that... Whereas he was using a lot of a new you know, language of egalitarianism, of equal rights of uh, of of those who you know, had been just objects of international politics, now uh, uh, coming to the table of the League of Nations and so on. He, on the other hand, was, had, uh, was a politician with strikingly hierarchical views of. Yeah, what, who was supposed to be at the top of the global hierarchy and who uh, was capable, for example, of governing themselves. Um, And so he was exhibiting a lot of um, basic uh, assumptions that many uh, liberal and not so liberal imperialists had espoused before 1914. And in Wilson's case, this created an obvious massive tension between his the rhetoric and the, um, the kind of um, expectations it created on the one hand and his actual practice of, for example, um, um, negotiating major terms of, uh, for example, the mandate system of the League of Nations um, in a way that uh, was mainly serving the interests of the top-rung powers, of imperial powers, and not so much of those who wanted to escape from the yoke of imperialism. Similarly, um, if you th- you know, I think a very interesting case here is the, um, the attempts of French policymakers, Georges Clemenceau, those who were you know, trying to re-devise uh, French uh, policies um, after the First World War, to, um, on the one hand, uh, think of a better way to ensure uh, French security, especially against a possible future German attack yeah on the one hand and uh they're um on on the other hand they're kind of being wedded to older concepts of um yeah of of maintaining um, a certain military uh, balance of power that basically led them to to try to uh yeah design a league of nations also uh, a um uh a uh, An alliance with Britain and the United States that um, came to came into major conflict with British and American ideas of creating not an exclusive kind of new order of the victors yeah that would just contain and um, and basically subdue the vanquished of this war, especially the the um newly founded uh, German Republic of weimar um, and in this way they too yeah, uh, were on the one hand trying to learn lessons to try to yeah, base french security on a on a different structure than before 1914 yet they were still practicing yeah, sort of uh, or made political choices that were much more in tune with the old style politics and this is this is a general yeah this this is i think uh, one of the general phenomena um in uh, in my outlook at the end of the book i'm trying to suggest that um one way of of understanding uh, the long 20th century in a in a new way is to get away from these ideas of the 20th century 30 years war you know, that we that have long been rather influential, where you think uh, there's almost an inevitable you know, sort of uh, escalation of a first world war and then a second world war. Um, I'm uh, more interested in uh, what I call a, a 50 years uh, learning process, where um, some of the you know, the major the questions of how to um, f- uh, build a more legitimate um, and more stable European and global order that were already on the horizon in 1918 are only being dealt with more convincingly after. Uh, the even greater shock of the 1930s, uh, the Great Depression, and then the Second World War. And some of the structures such as the the North Atlantic Alliance or the later idea of having an an inclusive um, European recovery program, um, these ideas were already around uh, in 1918, but they could only be implemented after uh, deeper lessons had been learned. On both sides of the Atlantic, um, also by American policymakers, and this was not possible um, yet yeah? um, in the in the short interval between the U.S. Um, yeah, sort of really engagement in the in the First World War, in 1917, and the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. This was too short, too too short a period, too uh, too massive a shock to to draw uh, more fundamental lessons.
0: So you do not agree with the late Zara uh, Steiner's more positive view of the Versailles uh, settlement.
1: Um I have great respect for Zara's uh, uh book The Lights uh, That Failed it's a, I think it's a real uh, milestone it's a great work um but I generally um yeah tend to disagree uh, with the idea that um in the end um I think you know I think she's absolutely right and I'm also trying to stress that in my book um, in, in emphasizing how demanding and complex the task of order building and peacemaking was after the Great War, yeah? so um, any uh, account that would say would easily suggest, oh, they failed here or they didn't do that and they could have done better, I think that's very um, fallacious yeah? and, and very misleading. On the other hand, I think um, uh, Steiner's work um, is the best. Kind uh, of of the kind of work that suggests, in the end, uh, what was done in, uh, in 1919 was the best possible yeah, compromise, and uh, it could have worked if it only had been executed. And here, I as if you've read the book, you will have seen I take a fundamentally different view because I do think that in its original form, yeah, the uh the kind of system that came to be known as the system of Versailles and then we also have the other you know, Parisian kind of treaty uh, uh systems that that uh, that were negotiated at that time um it had fundamental uh, uh shortcomings fundamental flaws uh um it was uh, in the end uh, yeah uh, a peace and order settlement that lacked legitimacy in profound ways that excluded a lot of the the kind of uh, players that you had to f- to in- integrate into a new order if you wanted it to last. Yeah? And this concerned, of course, the Soviet Union, which was still in the yeah, – this is still the time of an ongoing civil war where it was unclear. Uh, where where uh, what the outcome would be, but especially – and this is uh, one of the, the key points of this book um, – uh, it is a settlement that as yet failed to offer any real form of inclusion and mutually beneficial positioning of uh, the um, defeated powers, especially um, the nascent uh, Weimar Republic in Germany, um, and um, I'm trying to show in my uh, in the uh, final sort of outlook of, of this book that um, a lot of what actually um, benefited international order was done not in 1919, but uh, in the years after uh, the Paris Peace Conference in the 1920s, when after further crises and yeah, the Versailles system showing itself as being rather unsustainable, especially of course after the after Wilson's defeat in the Treaty fight. New steps were taken, and by the mid-1920s, you have the beginnings of a reform, quite a fundamental reform of the Versailles system through the London Agreements of 1924, settling reparations uh, to an extent, and especially then through the Locarno Security Pact of 1925, a first real kind of negotiated settlement on security questions in which the uh, political representatives of the Western powers, East European states and the Weimar Republic, especially Gustav Stresemann, the foreign secretary at the time, um, came together and both uh, agreed on terms of of security with a lot of American um, support in the background. So um, I'm trying to show that rather than focusing too closely on the moment of 1919, um, what we have to do if we want to understand what really Transformed international order in the, in the long 20th century, um, is to look at more long-term processes, yeah, of, of ordering of negotiated, um, settlements, um, in which, for example, the 1920s and then the late 1940s and 1950s stand out as two very, very formative periods of, um, in which the kind of international order that is still with us today in in fundamental ways, uh, but is under threat,
0: um, was actually being created. Why then do you disagree with the realist critique of the Versailles settlement?
1: Yeah, I think I already made that clear, I hope. Um, So I think the most most influential um, realist critique of the settlement of Versailles, in my view, is that um, or as usually, uh, that um, especially British but even more so US policymakers and governments were not sufficiently willing to support France in basically maintaining um, a piece of uh, force and a piece of containing by all possible means and isolating uh, the defeated powers to prevent a German resurgence. Yeah? so. Uh, the idea that that became very current again of course um after the uh, the rise of hitler and the second world war that the real problem had been that yeah germany had either not been sufficiently um sort of broken up or put under such restrictions um, militarily, economically, um, and in terms of its sovereignty, that it could never have had the capacity to yeah, to to, um, to challenge this uh, Versailles system ever again. And um, as I'm trying to show, I've, I've, I, um, I think that a real a thorough um, a comprehensive analysis shows that the priorities um, in 1919 were quite different ones, uh, namely that um, as some uh, very important uh, American and British also French actors understood at the time. Um, The real challenge was to create a kind of security architecture through the League but also through um, American and British um, assurances to France that would allow um, a process of safe integration of the defeated into the post-war order, namely uh, the idea that strengthening um, a Republican order in Germany with clear commitment to the kinds of uh, rules of arbitration, of international law, of the League of Nations, and a kind of especially Franco-German peace process after you know, the uh, 1919, under the kind of supervision and with the guarantees of the United States and Britain, and the creation thereby of a kind of renewed international concert. This, in my view, rather than kind of realist ideas of containment, um, would have been the, would have brought the best assurances of uh, preventing uh, a scenario like that of the 1930s. And here, I think it's quite um, interesting to see to what extent um, the aforementioned uh, developments around 1925, the Locarno Security Pact and other yeah advances that were being made at the same time actually um started to build this kind of new euro atlantic peace architecture yeah and uh, as i try to show um it was the the overwhelming shock of the great depression yeah and the kinds of uh, um uh uh, ne- negative uh, um, developments that caused, especially in, in, in Germany, but also in other in other states, that unfortunately undermined these first attempts to to basically anchor yeah, uh, uh, a Western-oriented uh, Weimar Germany to this post-war order. Um, but it didn't mean that all the steps that had been taken to try uh, to do this uh, were were false. Yeah? So uh, in that sense I, I think that the uh, the usual or the most preeminent realist critique um, misses uh, the major
0: points. Yeah? Um, in your uh, recounting of the period of Locarno diplomacy, uh, you seem to accord more agency or importance to the American administration, than say in Yakovson's uh, treatment of the same period, what is the basis of your differing interpretation?
1: Yeah. Um, so this goes back to my what also is in uh, in, the, in the introduction of this current book, a more comprehensive understanding of modern international politics, and um, so I'm trying to show that if one yeah co- does a comprehensive um, analysis of what happened in the 1920s, then one sees that. Yeah, this is not just a matter of, for example, government representatives um, negotiating security treaties in Locarno or in other uh, uh, Swiss uh, resorts, but um, this has to be seen against the background of a of a new kind of alignment of international power, influence, and norms and ideas of international politics. And here I mentioned um, the. Uh, uh, reparations uh, accords the reparations conference uh, conference of London of 1924 where um, you had a lot of background American informal uh, diplomacy and also the agency of American bankers of um, of, of financial agents, we might say um, like uh, like young uh, who were trying to uh, sort of prod the europeans to, uh, from a position of ultimatums and very confrontational international politics you know, that had uh, come to a to a crisis in the so called Ruhr conflict of thousand nine hundred and twenty three uh, with a real franco german standoff. Towards more modern ways of making financial and dip- and and political uh, agreements um, that all sides could live with, uh, and as I'm trying to show in this book, these are in some parts almost uh, complex bargains that that almost pre um, pre note or sort of predate the kinds of um, Uh, agreements that uh, would nowadays be made within the European Union. At that point, of course, under much more dire circumstances and with a a much more hostile basic uh, scenario, you have the first uh, sort of yeah, um, uh, agreements that are actually being negotiated with the help of um, informal um, uh, diplomatic processes, in which the United States is not at all isolationist. Yeah, so um, uh, it's not enough just to look at the for- the kind of formal commitments. Are the United States part of the league or not? Uh, are they part of uh, security agreements or not? We also have to look at this much wider sphere. Of international politics, um, and there, there's another dimension to that. Um, this is also the time, especially in the 1920s, when a lot of the non-governmental um, activists and those who wanted the United States to play more of an engaging, a leading role in international affairs were also stepping up uh, their um, their demands. Uh, the, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, was founded, and other pressure groups. You know, we still have uh um uh yeah we, we have a lot of activities of these actors that are also trying to build bridges across the atlantic including uh, to uh, berlin and to uh, weimar germany and this is the the wider backdrop yeah uh, this financial uh Uh, one might even say cultural, this uh, this idea that uh, international politics has to be modernized, it has to be uh, sort of taken out of the kind of spheres in which very few unaccountable unaccountable, uh, uh, leaders were making uh, big decisions uh, uh, into a a phase in which um, a lot of the, the emphasis was on Uh, creating, uh, uh, let's say, a new uh, framework um, in which um, it became uh, ever more normal for uh, German, for French, for Polish and for other um, policymakers to work on commonly acceptable and legitimizable solutions rather than uh, in perpetuating the kind of antagonisms that uh, the First World War had brought. And in all of these processes, the both the Republican administrations in Washington of the 1920s and the new kind of networks of transnationally operating American um, actors um, had a major influence, Uh, far more than I think more traditional historians have have recognized.
0: If your book could be said to have a hero, I suppose it would be Stresemann. At least in your treatment, he's the statesman who seems to have learned the lessons of the of the post 1914 period the greatest yet when his private papers came out in the mid-1930s there was great disappointment in the West at the fact that he seemed to be much more cynical about Locarno diplomacy and in fact uh, seemed to indicate that under certain circumstances he would be willing to forcibly revise the Polish German frontier Mm. that view of Stresemann doesn't make an appearance in your book why not
1: Yeah, um, it's an interesting point. I I deal much more extensively with the 1920s and also with Stresemann in my first book, The Unfinished Piece. So if you want to have a more in-depth treatment, uh, that's where I would suggest you go. and i wouldn't say he is a real hero here um he's one of the most striking figures so if there are if there are those uh, if if heroes are those who learn try to learn some lessons then we can start even with uh with clemenceau with wilson with lloyd george um with uh, Scheidemann and those who are trying to learn uh, something on behalf of the Weimar Republic in 1919 and later in the 1920s uh of course one would think of uh, figures like Austin Chamberlain uh British Foreign Secretary who really was one of the main uh, uh negotiators behind the Locarno Pact and of course Aristide Briand yeah so Stresemann is is one of uh, of a of a whole uh, sort of collective of of international leaders uh, and i 'm generally as I hope you will have seen i'm i 'm not very uh, interested in in a kind of blame game history where you have certain heroes on one side and villains on another i 'm um, trying to look at the bigger picture in this bigger picture. Um, Stresemann is particularly interesting because he undergoes such a major Process of reckoning. So during the First World War, he was known as Ludendorff's young man, a vociferous uh, sort of proponent of um, major German imperial schemes, of a greater German domination of of Europe. Um, And I think he's one of the um, politicians, as also, for example, Jonathan Wright's uh, excellent biography has shown. Who really um, was trying to reassess yeah, the underlying premises of his thinking um, and to come to different uh, conclusions? Um, uh, <clears throat> he was greatly aided in that by, by his um, assistant and, and collaborator, um, uh, von Schubert, who is an even more interesting uh, sort of thinker in terms of a new direction uh, in, in uh, Weimar German foreign policy. Um, yet Stresemann, and here we come to the other part of your question, I hope. Um, he was also an actor, of course, who had to scale uh, very uh, uh, um, sort of problematic uh, force fields. Yeah? So he, he had to gain legitimacy for what I believe was his genuine commitment towards a new European and Euro-Atlantic concert towards collective security in Locarno and towards Franco-German reconciliation. So you had to find support for this behind the scenes in a German kind of uh, constellation in which you had a lot of um, uh, political figures, but also members of the public being still very, very disaffected with what they saw as the dictated peace of 1919, still very influenced by German propaganda of the war and the immediate post-war era. <coughs> and um, Stresemann, who had worked as a journalist, was especially very, very uh, good in trying to address audiences in ways in which uh, he, uh, in, in such ways um, as he thought, would allow him to carry on with his uh, not at all cynical, in my view, policies, but very realistic policies of um, arguing that it was completely illusory to try to prepare the ground for a new German victory in a great war, in a rematch of the First World War. But he, for example, had to uh, keep at bay forces like the the former crown prince uh, and others, even in his own party, who were much more nationalist or reactionary. And so a lot of the kind of rhetoric he did use behind uh, closed uh, doors, uh, if one looks at it in a a, a wider context, you can see he did uh, use in 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 a Machiavellian, in an instrumental fashion, but they did not reflect his genuine convictions in my interpretation. Yeah, so in that sense, he's one, he's a he's a um, a very representative uh, figure who uh, is trying to, uh, to 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 really um, uh, instigate a reorientation in the mentalities of um, of his of his uh, of his nation at a time when uh, this
0: the German debate was still highly highly polarized. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be? I think in the end,
1: um, it is uh, a thought that has a lot to do with uh, the current uh, calamities, the current problems we face in the world. And uh, and that is, um, I hope one realizes when reading this book, how incredibly difficult and with how incredibly massive sacrifices. Um, it was um, it was attempted to build for the world um, uh, a more legitimate, a more egalitarian, uh, a more democratic international order that would prevent uh, yeah, the what up to that point had been yeah, chronic escalation of tension, conflict, and eventually, Massive war, Um, and I hope to instill, uh, to to show in this book that this uh, was something that uh, famously Max Weber called the drilling of very, very thick planks. Yeah. So um, what what uh, what worked, what created such order, were not easy decisions made at a peace conference or something that could be done. in a, in a short time, but rather lasting the lasting commitment to yeah, trying to not just develop ideas about collective security, uh, sovereignty, uh, human rights and uh, and minority rights, but also to find frameworks that would effectively protect them and uh, to um, not just uh, suggest that this was a task for a few, uh, aloof statesman, but for wider societies, and the book tries to show in the end that uh, this is a task that is never done. Yeah, it's never you never turn the corner and say, "Well, we've done all that. Now we can concentrate on something else." And I think our current crisis shows, when we look at Russia, we look at the the problems over Taiwan and China, that. Um, a lot of these harder lessons and the willingness not just of governments but also of of voters to stay attuned to these broader challenges and to ask themselves what kind of international engagement and understanding are required to meet them. This is sort of the the legacy of the Atlantic, the new Atlantic order Um, and that's something I hope the, 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 the book does convey.
0: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much.
1: Thank you for all your very, very interesting questions, Charles. All right. Thank you. It was a pleasure.